You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Dr. Magdala Sherry. Dr. Sherry is a board-certified internal medicine physician, educator, motivational speaker, and health policy enthusiast. So basically, she is Black girl magic personified. When you have such a prestigious career, it's easy to hide behind the roles that everyone expects you to play. But Dr. Sherry approached our conversation with a level of candor and vulnerability that truly reflects what this show is all about. A quick disclaimer, Dr. Sherry openly discusses her personal journey of overcoming trauma. We get into the very sensitive topic of sexual assault, which may be triggering to some of our listeners. All in all, there are so many nuggets in this interview. So as always, take a listen and please enjoy. Dr. Sherry, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. I feel like we've had a whole conversation already before we (laughs) pressed record, Um, but it'll make for a more free-flowing, comfortable conversation. So really excited because I feel like we had similar, we've had similar upbringings and experiences, which for me, I love talking to people from very diverse backgrounds, but there's something to be said for meeting someone who understands your struggle. Yes. Um, Finishes your sentences before you do. Exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm pretty amped for this conversation. Um, Let's get into it. Who is Dr. Magdala Sherry? All right. So that that question always makes Mm -hmm. me uncomfortable, to be honest. Um, I will say the way I look at myself or look at me being Dr. Sherry is more of a platform. Mm -hmm. So um, and I'll say that because Dr. Sherry is my career. It's the platform that I use to speak to people, to connect to people. But behind that, there's Maggie Mm -hmm. um, and that black girl who's learning herself and trying to learn how she navigates through the career. And there's also I'll do Magdala, which is my Haitian name Mm -hmm. and what that all encompasses. So I think if I'm looking at it holistic, to truly answer your question, there's so many different facets. Dr. Sherry is the thing that has gotten me in the door the mm-hmm. dream that I always wanted to accomplish, which ironically, once I accomplished it, I said, oh, but that's not it. <laughs> right, right. How do I find Maggie again? And how does Maggie intersect with the girl that grew up with Haitian parents mm-hmm. and what she was told who were super religious and trying to navigate her way? So I think I answered your question. Yes. It's, it's a little bit of understanding who's the person behind the platform. So let's start with Maggie. Mm-hmm. Let's start with young Maggie. Mm-hmm. Right. When did young Maggie know one day I want to be Dr. Sherry. Four years old. I Four. Full, full on mic drop. So yes. the story is my brother grew up sick. So we were always in the hospital. And I had told my mom when I would see the doctors, the you know white men at that time, mm-hmm. my brother is like 30 something years old. They always had the white coats. And I said, mom, who is that? And she's like, oh, that's the doctor. And I was like, all right, cool, bet. That's what I'm going to be. <laughs> Literally. So promise you, kindergarten, pre-K graduation, before kindergarten, everybody goes, uh, what do you want to be when mm-hmm. you grow up? Um, I go up there. I want to be a doctor and literally throw the mic. I did the full on <laughs> bomb mic drop. <laughs> At four. <laughs> no lie. No, listen, I get it because I like made the declaration around four as well. Right. The, and like I was serious about it. Like, so no, this, this is what it's going to be. Exactly. And for me, it was like the Claire Huxtable phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So like I saw this beautiful black woman on television and I was like, you know what? That's it. That 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 is what I want. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, I thought for whatever reason, I was going to be like a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. So like I didn't just say I was going to be a lawyer. I was like, oh, I'm going to be like a district attorney. Like right, I'm going right. to be, which is bizarre because right. now 
now I realize it's the last thing I would want to be. Right. right. Um, but I don't know where that, my mom doesn't know where that piece came from. I don't. But like the same thing. It was like, this is what it is. Yep. Um, and I made decisions accordingly and really walked the line in with the intention of becoming that. So for you, especially growing up um, with Haitian parents, mm-hmm. I'm sure you were on this overachiever, very disciplined of course, path. Only five <laughs> professions you can do. I was just talking to somebody about Let's this. run them down. Okay, so, the five. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, nursing, I think. And people may argue mm-hmm. with me once they see this podcast, like, yo, you messed this up. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, um, nursing, definitely one. And I think teacher, some mm-hmm. people argue can be in there, but that's probably pretty much the top five. Got it. So I was set because I, without my parents forcing it upon me, mm-hmm. I chose one of the top five. Now, they would not let me live it down and made sure of that. Um, I think for me, what has shifted is doing this on my own terms. Mm-hmm. So I remember graduating college and I had applied initially, um, didn't get in because my MCAT score wasn't high enough. And my mom's like, well, you're going to apply again. I was like, no, I need a break. Like, mm-hmm. I don't feel ready. I don't think, and I need to make sure this is what I really want to do. There's way more than you realize. So along the journey, it's been making it my own. Sure. And like shifting it and then doing it on my own terms. So I want to talk about that not scoring high, high enough on the MCAT. But before we get there, um, because I know for me with the law school experience, I was so used to like being head and shoulders above the rest, right? Mm-hmm. Like working really hard, being in the best classes, right. being at the top of my class, you know, all those things, excelling in my career until I went to law school. And it wasn't, and even in college, even though it was competitive, like right. I felt like I deserved to be there and, and I could navigate that. But it wasn't until the LSAT where I was like, oh, <laughs> Okay. Um, And then going to law school and realizing there are a lot of smart people out here and we're Mm -hmm. all the same level of high achievers, et cetera. So talk to me a little bit about like your formative years, elementary, middle and high school Mm -hmm. and where your focus was in terms of academia and extracurriculars and how you got to the point of preparing for the MCAT? Um, yeah, good question. So for me, I was always top, mm-hmm. like top tier, was in the honors classes, AP classes. Um, what changed what school I went to was cultural influences. Got it. My mom was like, no, you're not living on campus. Everybody goes on campus and gets pregnant and then doesn't believe in God <laughs> and like had this set life and story. That sounds very Pentecostal, but anyway. <laughs> yes, I was raised Pentecostal. Okay. So there you go. Right on. Oh, I know. So, so I, so in a lot of ways, I actually grew up with some resentment towards mm-hmm. my mom and my parents and I probably in the last two or three years I admitted that you know because I'm a little bossy now so like I can tell you how I feel um I've said to her like hey I wouldn't have gone because I went to a state school mm-hmm. Moxler State not knocking it good education mm-hmm. got me where I needed to go but I wanted to go to HBCU I thought about Spelman um I actually had gotten into Emory and their eight-year program wow um so you got into Emory the full eight-year deal and, yep. and there was another one I had gotten to I can't remember the school in North Carolina um and my mom was like no you're not leaving home like Nah. And that was just the end of it. That was the end of it. There was no arguing that. Like, nah, you're not leaving. Now, were they paying? <laughs> no. Okay. So they're they're not paying for you to go. Mm-hmm. But and I'm asking these questions no, fully knowing, no, like, questions. yeah, fully knowing like how this plays out. Right, right. They're not paying for you to go, no. but putting limitations. Yes on where you can go despite having these really great opportunities. Right. Yeah. Emory is an amazing, they have an amazing right. medical program. Right. And they're just like, no. And there was no no more discussion well, after that. The counselor wanted to come and like, listen, I don't understand. You kept nearly a 4.0 in high school. Like, you have opportunities. You're talking about you want to go to med school. It doesn't matter where you go to college. And you want to make sure you leverage yourself mm-hmm. and get yourself in the right position. And I remember being off, I was like, no, I don't even want to ask my mom. You're going to make this an argument. I don't really want to deal with this right now. And Literally, that was our conversation. And listen, I, through this show and community, I talk to 
through so many, especially those of us who grew up in church, mm-hmm. um, who have this story yeah. of an experience or parents taking a position on something and people, even like mentors and adults in your life, really challenging you mm-hmm. to like go back to them. No, talk to your parents, tell them X, Y, and Z. But as a kid, knowing, you know, what it's going to be and being like, you know what, I'm just going to let this, yeah, let this let be, let just rock. let it, let it ride out, let it play out because right. it's not worth the argument and and people on the outside don't really understand um, what is perceived as disrespect. Right, right. You know, culturally and a lot of our family mm-hmm. dynamics, et cetera. And I, I know, you know, people right now who are 35, 40 who will not challenge right. their parents exactly. um, because of that, that that dynamic. So I get it. Some people may listen to this and think that is utterly ridiculous. Right. They, they right. weren't even writing their check. Right. But I, you know, but I understand it. Thankfully, you know, I we grew up, Demarcus and I, Pentecostal to a point, but my mom got out like before I went to high school. <laughs> right, so right. we had much more freedoms and we were encouraged to really spread our wings, which is great. We like ended up non-denominational. You know, they think right. that that's like, like you, you know, you, you barely hanging on. Yeah, that's like, like the you devil, you right? Do still believe in God? Like, <laughs> right. You might be in a cult. Like it's like that. <laughs> but you know, do you still pray? <laughs> exactly. They, you might not even be covered. Right. Like, you know, and, and I get it. God, right. God bless those who are still living that, that really strict, right. you know, theology. Um, but it opened up the world for me. But I know that story of like, I can't say anything. Like it, this this is what it is, despite the fact that this is my life. I'm moving into, you know, adulthood, mm-hmm. et cetera. So but you accepted that you went to Montclair State and you and decided layers too just to add mm-hmm. I think that'll give a good picture because yeah. I think everybody has their own story yeah. so not only raised Pentecostal mm-hmm. you got cultural influences yeah. you know my parents working my father a factory job mm-hmm. my mom's a nurse's aide uh, my father's also a preacher uh. so there's another facet too like mm-hmm. it's just not just Pentecostal and religion it's culture sure. it's also you know we're in the limelight my father's preaching every other places he's preaching on the Haitian radio station oh he's 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 doing it yeah <laughs> So there's like, and Haitian families do a really big thing about keeping up image mm-hmm. and appearances. So that was one part. And then my own internalization of issues was, so I grew up and I was assaulted um, by someone for a while. And I speak openly mm-hmm. about it now because I feel more comfortable. Um, but that's also what was going on with me. So mm. I don't even have the self-esteem and the confidence to even have this conversation because I'm still trying to navigate through what happened to me when I was younger. Okay. And you're not allowed to talk about it. Like that was another thing that was when once my family knew or my parents I should say particularly knew they were like don't tell nobody you can't embarrass the family mm-hmm. which is, is a common thing right. in the Caribbean culture and the African culture we're now just talking about it now because of the Me Too movement and different things so that's also what's happening so mm-hmm. I think when people are like I don't understand like they weren't paying for it you could have left and never turned around but that's what I knew Sure, that's like the person who's been vegan all their life and never had meat and when you're like you never had a burger mm-hmm. but they never ate right. so they wouldn't know what they're missing or what to compare it to so that's what I knew it was church home school that's it those three things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's literally what you know in the Haitian culture on top of everything that I was going through. Right. So, you know, to me, I was like, yeah, I got to listen. Like, I'm not having this argument. She says no. No. That's the end of it. Yeah. So since you brought that up, let's detour a little bit and talk about the the assault mm-hmm. piece. What ages were you when you were were victim of that? Uh, eight to t- eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, it was someone who was had a role in a church. Okay, which is another reason why mm-hmm. that became a whole shifting process yeah. for me with trying to find where I stand with religion. Um, somebody who was highly regarded, and even when my parents knew the blame was put on me. Mm-hmm. So again, a lot of things are happening, right? School's yeah, happening. You're now hitting middle school. You're about to hit the high school. Um, and I didn't even realize really process what was happening to me until. 
until I'll never forget Miss David. I always remember her name, seventh grade, peeps what was happening, the changes that were happening. I was getting more clothes off. Mm -hmm. I'd sit in the back of the room, acing all the exams and everything. So I'm not struggling, but I'm like staying to myself because I was internalizing for so long. And she would like say, you know, you want to talk to me? You know, you can you can share with me. I'm like, no, because in my mind, I'm like, nope, not taking right. it to my parents. Right. No, we ain't doing this. So it really came full circle in college um, where it really became a really trying time for me. And I actually was suicidal, had planned it out and everything mm -hmm. because I hadn't dealt with what was going on on the inside. So again, like I, as much as I get bitter about certain things and like my, you know, hey, it could have been different. I could have went to a different college. It could have ended up being a different way. Um, I know it was a process for me. It was, sure. It was a growth. It was like something to, to learn what my, like what I needed to know to help the next person mm -hmm. as well too. So how did your parents find out? My mom sensed that something was wrong mm -hmm. um, and had seen this person with me on different occasions and sensed that there was a little bit too much, like, why is this person so close? They're not even mm -hmm. like an uncle or, you know, related to the family like that. And, you know, I denied it a couple times because I was super mm -hmm. scared. And again, I'm still processing, like, people don't realize there's a, there's a sense of manipulation that happens. Absolutely. Person just doesn't go and like, you know, molest you or do whatever. Mm -hmm. They've earned that trust, right? And usually it's family. It's someone in a church. It doesn't just happen that way. So I think even for me, I was like, what is happening? And when my mom brought it up, I was like, I think this is what she's trying to ask me and what I should be talking about. But again, that fear factor of what she would, how she would mm -hmm. perceive it and what it would look like. Um, so we talked about it. And then I think the conversation where I actually admitted to it, we were actually in the car. We were actually driving to the mall. And you were how old at this point? Probably, I was definitely 11 or okay. 12. Mm -hmm. We were in the car and um, yeah, because I was still in middle school and I told her and and then she was like, yeah, I'm not mad at you. You know, you should have told me. And then the next day she's like, I was like, don't tell dad, don't tell dad. And she ended up telling my dad, obviously, I should have known that was going to happen. But um, it kind of went through a backlash because it became more about the family can't take this embarrassment. <laughs> so, you know, she actually told me, don't tell my siblings, don't tell anybody. And that's what I did for so long. Mm -hmm. But I was suffering in silence, essentially. So literally go to school, ace classes, do well, stay to myself, come home and literally crying myself to sleep because I'm still trying to figure out what happened um, and couldn't really talk to anybody about it. You know, we've, we've talked about it on this show, mm -hmm. this shroud of secrecy around trauma mm -hmm. um, within the Black community, within Black religious circles as well, where this is the idea that mm -hmm. you are a victim of something, but if it's made, made known, you've somehow brought embarrassment, yep. which places blame and mis misdirects blame in a way that I will never understand. Mm -hmm. um, and also have people roaming around who've committed crimes who've never had to answer yep. for their crimes yep. because of this idea of, of keeping it a secret. And um, I, I talk to a lot of people through this show mm -hmm. and who've done the work, but also a lot of people in, in my friendships and relationships who are walking around with all this stuff that has like never been unpacked and not really acknowledging how that affects their day-to-day -day life. Right. You've done the work, mm -hmm. right, to to unpack that. And I definitely want to get into to how you did it. Um, but it sounds like, and this is this is one thing, you know, when we evolve as Christians mm -hmm. or spiritual beings, you know, we we sometimes lose, often lose some of that stuff yep. in the foundation. But one thing that I think I've carried is that it really does all work out for your good yes. in the end. Yes. Um, and and we're always being nudged into the direction of purpose and, and destiny, despite the detours and despite poor decisions that parents may make or we may make, et cetera. And that's the beauty of it. So talk to me about that healing process and coming to a really dark place 
as it relates to what may be a rock bottom for you right. with carrying that trauma and how you were able to really see a way out? Um, I think I don't start to deal with it until I move out of my house, my mm. parents' house. So I think there's something to be said about trying to deal with it when you're still in it. Yeah. Um, because it was very close. The person used to be part of my church. Mm -hmm. And I was still going to that church um, for a very long time. Um, part of the community, like it was so fresh. Um, my house, like those are all places where some of that trauma even occurred. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in it. And I didn't even realize, you know how you just, black women are notorious for this. You just keep going. Yes. Because you've been told that's what our fight is. It's mm -hmm. always going to be your fight. You're always going to have to, you know, work a little harder. You're always going to have to give a little more. But you almost forget that you, you can't in all these battle spots yeah. along the way. So I think it got to that point where I was like, wow, I'm so scarred. I've been bleeding for so long. Mm -hmm. I have all this blood loss. I got to do something about it. So I think leaving was the first step. Um, when I left, I had a roommate. I moved for my master's degree, which I got before I went to med school. And my roommate was from down south and she was black American. And probably the first time I've been able to experience being close with somebody who's not Caribbean, mm. particularly who's not Haitian and really opened my eyes to different things. Like we all know Haitians, Caribbeans, Africans, we have these stereotypes against each other. We almost bit against each other. Right. And for her to be like, why do you think that? Like, why do you have that stereotype? Like really helped me first to start pushing against what I was taught. So when she started bringing up stuff, I was like, oh, if she's telling me that's not, what else in my yeah. life have I been told is accurate, is not accurate under the name of this is what God says. Mm -hmm. So I really started to ask the questions there. And then obviously relationships, as you get into relationships with other people and you realize certain things trigger you, I was like, oh, there may be a problem here. <laughs> a little bit. We might yeah. have to work on this a little bit. <laughs> so that was like, Another part of it, um, another thing that could make me almost mask it was um, med school because I knew since I knew really early I wanted to go become a doctor. Sure. It's a very straight path. You got to go to college, graduate, get a degree, get a certain GPA. If you don't have it, do something else, do mm -hmm. a post-bac, do a master's, strengthen it. If you want to have a gap year, you're like literally trying to aim at this goal of getting in because getting in is so hard. Yes. You neglect yourself. And this is actually the blessing in disguise for me is that I've been encouraging a lot of the students that I mentor, take a pause. This degree is going to stay there. Even if you don't graduate in four years, you will be fine. But I'm going to need you to work on yourself because you will never have a time to do it. And it's just going to keep piling on. So I think part of that process too, as I would get closer to my um, goal and didn't feel better. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but this is, I still feel kind of empty. Like, I feel like I'm still missing something, but that's not supposed to happen. Like I passed my boards. All right, cool. All right. I matched. Like that's not supposed to happen. All right. And I think the biggest epiphany was when I got to residency and I sat there and I was like, okay, this is it. I am a doctor now. I'm actually going to start working and seeing patients and like being for real. But I still something missing. There's something I haven't really worked on. And that's when I started to really do more work. I got a therapist. I still have a therapist um, that I work with and just slowly working through those wounds and working through what that has done for me. Right. And it's it's so much like working out. Like you can't, I think people think, you know, you go to therapy, you hit I remember I was dating this guy and he had come through something really traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I asked like very early, you know, did you consider therapy? He's like, oh, yeah, I went to therapy. And I was like, oh, awesome. Yeah, Even yeah. though I was seeing signs that told me he didn't really do the work. <laughs> and then later on, I was right. like, yeah, about that therapy thing, like how long did you go? He was like, oh, like two or three sessions. And I was thinking, OK, like that that is not going to therapy. Right. Um, so it 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 took you all these years, you know, of trauma and experiences and, and internalizing things to get to this point 
and it can take a significant amount of time yep. to get through it. Yep. And sometimes you come through a phase of therapy and you feel better and, and then life circumstances change yep. and it triggers things that you thought were resolved. Um, so I'm, we are huge proponents of therapy on this show. Mm -hmm. And personally, um, I always say, you know, when I talk to people who've done it, I've done it at two different times in my life right. and we'll probably do it again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't be afraid to go in like yeah. for a tune up or yeah. continue yep. to to unpack what's there because everything in your life is literally drawing right. things out of you. Exactly. I'm trying to show you things. But also, I think it also, a lot of it, the, the issues around therapy within the black community, which is changing and evolving and getting better, it does have to do with a couple of things. I think the stigma that if you go, you're crazy, yep. like something's um, really, really wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a label that is extremely negative. But also because we are, many of us are so rooted in religion yep. that, you know, it's nothing that deliverance can't solve. Exactly. Just go, you just, get, you just need to pray. You just need to get delivered. You're just not close to God. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and I, I find that interesting considering that we make use of earthly things in other realms. Yep. Like, you know, um, unless you're talking about the radical folks who are very extreme, people go to chemo, you know, for cancer. Right. You know, they go and they have health issues. They go to dialysis, et cetera. Somehow we look at therapy different, right. differently and say, just just pray. Right. Um, but and media has played into that mm -hmm. too, right? Because even when you picture the mental health, for a long time you have, when they do the movies, what do they do? They put this crazy person on the street talking to themselves. And really that's a person who could have a psychiatric disorder like bipolar or schizophrenia. Yeah. But that's what you see. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many movies have you seen or shows have you seen where they actually have an active couple or an active person in the past that was actually actively going through therapy? Yes. It was never picked that way. So I can't even get mad at our community because we didn't see it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And even as we went through our trauma, whether it's racism, slavery and everything, no one even offered that as an opportunity for us to grow and heal and learn. Right. Yeah. It almost always felt like it was for privileged folks, that it was for a certain group of people, high class people. So you didn't even know where you fit in. Mm -hmm. Right. And you kind of got used to like, I'm supposed to experience trauma. Yes. And I'm supposed to prove that I'm strong enough and I'm one of those good blacks that made it through it. Right. So we actually don't even realize that we've internalized that narrative and we keep trying to meet it. Oh, absolutely. And the Christian piece is like, you got to be a strong tower, yeah. like a tree, you know, so planted. Like, testimony. Yeah. Like, be up in church <laughs> and tell people, let me tell you what God did. No, let me tell you what God helped you do, but also you got help. Mm -hmm. We don't put it that way. Right. We don't. Exactly. And, and one of the things that I don't shy away from is as professional women, Women, we are afforded access mm -hmm. in a way that working class may find very difficult. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a lot harder to find not only therapy, but good therapy mm -hmm. when you don't have the resources. Right. right. So it's also that piece that I do want to acknowledge right. um, that is a bit easier right. when you do make the money or have the insurance, yep. you know, to go um, and, and you can be choosy. Yep. Right. And right. it's not just like, oh, all I can afford is Catholic charities. Let but me the, see what they have to the offer. The caveat to that, too, mm -hmm. which is crazy, is that the tough exterior that you built, especially as a black woman mm -hmm. for so long, helped you get to your place, helped mm -hmm. you get to the table, helped you get to the, you know, med school, the, the white coat and everything that it's almost uncomfortable, even though you have more access and you have more resources to even go because you're like, but then what's wrong with me? Yeah. I made it this far. I'm successful. I mm -hmm. meet what everybody's trying to strive for. But why do I feel like I need this? And you almost get even more scared to go because you're like, but it worked. I made it here. Yep. So I'm just overthinking. I'm just going to pray it through. I'm just overthinking. I need to drink more water. Right. Right. Get on my like, green smoothie now game. Now I'm around them too much, so I can't <laughs> yeah. just get my life together. Now I'm thinking about therapy like you were fine. Mm -hmm. So you almost, and then you don't, you're also stuck in isolation. So yeah. you can't go back to your own in your community and talk about it because you're like, come on, like you live in the life, you're making money. So you, you feel like an outsider in your own atmosphere, the place where you grew up. 
And then most of the times when you get to your work corner, people don't look like you yep. who don't understand those experiences. So then you're really pit against yourself and you're looking in the mirror like, okay, should I do this therapy thing or not? So I can totally even see how even the professional black woman struggles to even say, I need some help in this regard. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, it's a term that I've been using for a while. I use it in talks. I've used it on, used it on this show. We nurse our wounds with success. Yes. Like we just strive and strive and strive and people have different ways of coping. Yep. Um, and there is a segment of the population that we cope by achieving. Mm-hmm. That is that is the drug, like mm-hmm. workaholism. Let me just get another degree. Yep. Let me get this thing, take this trip, you know, get this infinity pool yep. shot on yep. Instagram, like all those things to sort of prove to ourselves. It's validation. That we are validated, like mm-hmm. see me, know me, love me. Right. Um, but it is coming from a, a, an empty place. Yes. Um, yes. And not for everyone, yeah. but for a, a, lot a, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and I have these conversations with, women speaking to our group specifically who look amazing on the outside and right. I, I see work in entertainment these you know the sexy industries yeah. as well have the titles that people take have a step all. back when exactly. you when you mention what you do um, and are so deeply sad yeah. and unfulfilled and often angry underneath it all um, but feeling I've watched people carry it and I've, I've dealt with that and then beat themselves up when they reach the state of burnout yep. or like, I just can't get up or I haven't been to the gym in the week and mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why. And um, I feel so bad. I'm being so lazy, yep. not realizing that that is a symptom yep. of something very serious going on internally and things are coming to a head. And that's when you've got to turn inward and say all the things that, that I've been doing are things that I wanted to do and I'm checking boxes. But is it real legitimate? Exactly. self-care um, and self-healing and and you got to be vulnerable with each other exactly I think what helped me in my moment was I remember a girlfriend who's also a professional mm-hmm. um, not in medicine but in another field and she kind of went through her moment and I'll never forget her being so transparent with me as she went through it especially when she was in a role where you know she got the professional degree she's yeah. an attorney she has that but then something's not right so when I got when I got through my something's not right I know who to, I knew who to turn to mm-hmm. and I knew where to go and I knew I wasn't the only one who had experienced it yeah. So I think what we have to do better is just being transparent about it. That's mm-hmm. one thing that I've learned in my journey. Like, yo, just be honest about it. Like people see me now and like, oh my gosh, the hair's growing. Yes. The white coat's there. You're t- your assistant professor. You're a doctor. But man, it was so much work. Oh yeah. my God. I almost didn't even see this point happening um, for a long time mm-hmm. because there were so many things. Like I had, I felt like I had so many holes, um, but it came to that point of sitting there like something missing. This ain't it. Yeah, to find it. So I definitely there's an Instagram post that I saw that you did that I want to talk about as it relates to women and black women reaching that moment where they need to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. and get back on track. But I'm going to table that for a second Um, uh, because I'm passionate about this subject. And I think I just have a heart for getting helping us get to a place Mm -hmm. as a culture where we are not just surviving, but we are thriving and thriving looks very different than just material things and the job. And yeah, exactly. The the, the picturesque. Um, Yeah. So I I most certainly am like appreciative of you being, being very open about process because people are going to see your skin popping and the hair like looking all fabulous right, right. and think thinking wow she's doing all these things she's got these IG followers she's a professor and think that like I just took these steps and here I am right. um so I definitely you know appreciate that but I want to talk a little bit more about okay you take the MCAT 
don't do very well, mm -hmm. decide. Were you disappointed or were you just like, okay, another step in the process? Um, another step in the process. Okay. I hadn't, I was so, so to be honest, I didn't want to take the MCAT. Okay. I almost didn't feel ready, mm -hmm. um, but I felt pressured to fit the timeline that I had told myself in my brain. <laughs> it was totally self-imposed, right? So self-imposed and family imposed. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you're going to go to med school right after. You know, you're going to take the MCAT. You're going to go. You're going to be done by 26. You're going to be married. You're going to have a child. I had it all planned out. Which is a whole other... Epic fail. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> so I think this not only self-imposed, but family-imposed and the pressures that I put on myself, um, I took it. So when I got the score back, I wasn't surprised to, if I'm being completely transparent. I was like, okay. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. a little rough. Um, but I also knew that I felt... I think now, obviously, going back, you always feel like you can pinpoint points. I knew something was missing from even that point because, again, I kept going for the grades and making the grades go up. But, you know, yeah, it made my parents happy and it made me feel like I was on track. But there was something else. Like, there, for a long time, I felt that something else. So when I was trying to stall on the MCAT, but then I ended up taking it, it didn't work out. But I still got interviews for a few places because my grades were good and I had a really good, strong resume. I was like, all right, cool, you know, maybe this will work out and I'll still get my plan and I'll, you know, let me push away that feeling of that something else. When it didn't work out in the end, because I ended up on a wait list and mm -hmm. I didn't get off the wait list and I was waiting all summer and I was working for it. I was definitely disappointed because I wanted it to just go. Yeah. But I will say there was an inner piece of knowing. I didn't tell a lot of people, but I knew that I was going to get there. I just had a reassurance that there was a different route. Mm -hmm. And there was a reason why I was going a different route. And a lot of that came through prayer and came through like watching certain things. Like, for example, during that time that I waited um, because of my self-esteem issues and what I had gone through, I decided that in my home church, I'd start like a... Um, in the Sunday school class for the girls, I'd start like an empowerment program mm -hmm. and like just do different things. And I talked to a friend who's one of the Sunday school teachers and I was like, hey, do you mind for like the month of July and August that I just come every Sunday and you do your Bible study thing, but I can do some things about the girls and talk about media and everything. And they loved it. And that was one of the places where she was like, and I built my own curriculum by myself, mm -hmm. like literally came to me. I sat and I, for an afternoon, I just wrote everything that I wanted to do. I created my own curriculum and I went to her and she's like, this sounds great. Yeah, do it. So I did it that summer. And she, the, after the first session I did, she said, you're really good at teaching. Like I just need, and she's a teacher by trade as well. So I just need you to know that you're really good at teaching. Like you simplify things and break things up. Have you ever considered a, a career in teaching? And that's when the light bulb went off. Hence now I'm in academia. Mm -hmm. Later on in my medical school career, I would actually take that program and develop it bigger and do an after-school program in Camden. Wow. If that summer doesn't happen, where I have that moment to kind of start thinking about other things and not be so pressured to get everything done, I don't get there, right? So a lot of it reflectively, I'm like, you know, it all worked out for the bigger purpose. And later on, someone else picked up my project and ended up doing it in Camden as well. And it's one of the things that I use to promote, like the talks that I do for women empowerment and different things. If that summer doesn't happen, where I'm on a wait list, not knowing what's happening, and then I don't get off the wait list. I don't do that project. So just learning, like, you know, as much as my parents don't see me as the radical Christian that they wanted me to be, <laughs> there's still this faith and resounding reassurance that, you know, my relationship with God has strengthened me and given me purpose in my life. So, and I had to learn how to make that look like, what, mm -hmm. how do I make that look like what Maggie needs it to look like? Not the going to church every day, look like everybody else, don't wear pants. I didn't wear pants until college. It was really that Oh, bad. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, I pretty much figured that out, but I'm glad yes. you confirmed. Yes. So it was, one, it was like really one of those. And it was, it really came to a point where that's not it. Like that's not 
the, you know, religious walk, if anything, as you get more closer to God, you it's a relationship. Right. It's one-on-one. I can't judge what your relationship looks like versus mine. So I think as I've gone through certain certain things now, I look and I'm like, God, you, you, you a real one. Mm-hmm. Real good. That was real good. <laughs> Didn't see that. Didn't peep it happening, but thank you. Thank you. So just learning that process. And I'm grateful. Like I tell people the gap year or the gap, it was two years, mm-hmm. was the best two years of my life that I could have worked on myself, moved out, um, encountered other people who think differently than me. Um, like my old roommate, who's a really good friend of mine. I'll be going to her wedding in the fall. Like just experiencing a world that I just never knew existed. Yeah. So I appreciate it for what it was. And also, I think we need to start having a wider view of what ministry is. Mm-hmm. Right. And service. Yes. And we can serve, especially our own in, in many different ways. Of course, there's this belief within the church that you have to be like in a pulpit mm-hmm. and, you know, preach, preach down yeah. for people to say, oh, this person is anointed. But anointing comes in many different forms. Yes. And, yes. It, and and for me, it's about doing what God called you to do. Mm-hmm. And that can look very different than, you know, if people feel that call awesome. But I think sometimes we put a lot of weight on that, you know, as that only those being the people who have something special. Right. When really that, that those giftings can manifest in very different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, that's a good point because, um, because of what happened when I was younger, I didn't talk. Like Mm -hmm. I liked, you might as well just call me mute, which is why I related so much to Maya Angelou and Mm -hmm. her writings and things like that. Cause I felt like she could articulate what I was going through during those times. So it's funny when people meet me now and they're like, but you're like a motivational speaker. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Like, and I was like very, did my grade, did my work, got my grades, didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Like even in church, people knew, yeah, Maggie, I, like it's funny because people from church that are good friends with me now, they're like, you never really even spoke. We knew where you sat though, you, <laughs> with your family. It was like picturesque. It was always perfect, but we didn't even know. So to see a lot of my friends now, they're like, they're almost so much more excited than me mm-hmm. to see my own growth be, and, and just understanding that calling because I would have never thought like I'll be, you know, in big audiences, talking to people, connecting with other people. No, I was quiet. Like I barely even said anything. Maybe if anything I wrote, but would never like almost get emotional sometimes when I step in front of a podium and Mm -hmm. I get ready to speak and I see all these people waiting to hear what I'm going to impart. And I'm like, but I remember being in my room crying and thinking like, I don't want to talk to the world or anybody Mm -hmm. to be now in front of strangers. And they are coming up to me saying they're empowered by by what I'm saying. And hanging on to every word. And hanging on Mm -hmm. to every word. And sometimes depending on what I'm talking about, I've seen people shed tears and I'm like, what? Like, I never would have thought that girl who was going through so much would have this much of an influence and mm-hmm. impact. So, um, of course, we love speakers around here and people mm-hmm. who are multi-hyphenates mm-hmm. and involved in a lot of things. But what was the moment where you were like, you know, you had the, the teaching mm-hmm. epiphany. Um, but what was the moment when you were like, I don't want to just be a doctor. Like, I can speak and I can do all those things. Was it a progression or did you have that aha that was like, you know what? I need to diversify. So I think it was definitely a progression um, for sure. I think by college, so I was very good at Googling. Mm-hmm. So I Google all these people, especially when you're trying to figure out other people of color who are in medicine, what they've been doing. Um, so I was very good at Googling and have an idea of, you know, what other people are doing, what they've accomplished. Uh, one person, um, Dr. Barbara Ross Lee, she's the mm-hmm. sister to Diana Ross. Um, she was the first black woman to be a dean of a U.S. medical school. And I remember like hanging on to that. Oh, there's something else like you could do like there's what what's this about and I would look into her background and different things that she would have done or or later on it would be Regina Benjamin as she became Surgeon General so I think I was very good at researching now figuring out what that would look like for me 
took some work and kind of seeing things. Um, the moment you said that, what came to mind was a speaking engagement that, so I would speak here and there, you know, president of a club. So you talk a little bit more and I realized I could do that or I could organize people in a club or keep them like, you know, structured. But there was a speaking engagement I did while I was in residency. And my sister was actually there. It was like a last minute thing. It was a um, banquet for one of the student groups at the medical school in um, Newark at mm -hmm. Rutgers. And it was their uh, minority student uh, association banquet. And somebody hit me up last minute, like, hey, our person can't come because of the weather. You in town? Because I was in residency in Connecticut. And I was like, you know, I've heard that you speak before and I think you'd be really good. I think you can motivate the crowd. You could do it. So initially, let me tell you. So when I agreed, I was like, oh, I got notes from other stuff. Like I'll make mm -hmm. things happen. Couldn't find my notes because I decided to clean out my computer. And I had like <laughs> oh, four gosh. hours. And I was like, Maggie, what you signed up for? <laughs> and... I was like, okay, so I guess we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to wing this. And, you know, let me challenge myself. Let me speak from the heart about my journey and what I've learned so far. And I think at that point, either was I about to graduate med school. I, I can't remember where I was, but I think I was already in residency at that point, if I remember. And I gave my speaking talk and that was probably the first standing ovation I got. Mm -hmm. And my sister, that was probably my first time my sister heard me speak, like in front of a big audience. And I saw her face in the audience. And I was like, oh, snap, I just did something here. Like something just happened I did happened a thing. Yes. I did a thing. <laughs> and I remember sitting down, she was like, my sister could not stop talking about it. She's like, yo, Maggie, Maggie. And I was like, was it good? And my sister has a thing. When she goes Maggie and she pauses, <laughs> she's being legit. So I know she's being for real. If she's like, has something to say, she'll go, Maggie, okay, I can tell you. She was like, Maggie. And I sat there. And then there was another person who was in the crowd who actually went to the same church mm -hmm. that I grew up in, who it got word to my parents and it came back around and he was like, Maggie, seriously, where did that, where, where did that come from? And I think that's when I knew that this was a thing. Didn't know how it would curate itself, but mm -hmm. I realized I had a thing that I had to work on. So it's it's just been going from there. So when those of us who are not in residency, not in medicine, mm -hmm. when we think about residency, we like think of Grey's Anatomy, mm -hmm. like people sleeping at a hospital, <laughs> like not having time for mm -hmm. anything else. Your life is consumed for mm -hmm. that period of time by um, the work itself. Right. Were you able to really curate you know, during that I experience? I did like a few speaking engagements mm -hmm. during that experience, including that one, but not much. Um, you have time. Like residency is crazy. Um, don't get me wrong. There's long hours or times where you're ready to like, just be like, I'm so over this. Like, why am I doing this to myself? Um, but your experience is really made by two things, where you go to residency and who your res co-residents are. So I had some amazing co-residents that I'm still good friends with. Like recently we've been going to each other's weddings and things like that. So I've had a good experience there. Um, but residency shaped the voice I would have have. Mm. So even the negative things that happened to me in residency really set the platform and the stage for what would be so important to me in my career. Um, so yeah, you can, I mean, obviously if you're a surgical resident, like it's a little bit different depending on your specialty, but you still, still have a life. Mm -hmm. Like there's still a life, not crazy, like Grey's Anatomy, but there's still a life that happens and you have to be intentional just like everything, because I'm sure, you know, from as a professional woman, like your career is just as busy when you're done. Absolutely. Right. If anything, you're given more. I remember when I got, I was like, I'm still hustling. I'm still doing this. I thought I was done. <laughs> so you realize you'd have to just be intentional. And at certain times you say no to certain things. And at certain times you're like, oh, okay, I can't commit to this. I have this priority. Right. Mm -hmm. So can you unpack a little bit of those negative experiences that really fueled some of the things that you talked about today? Um, the microaggressions, the mm -hmm. discrimination was huge. Ooh, those microaggressions. Like it eats at you like hardcore. And on top of that, so you transition and you're a doctor, it's already hard and you're going through your residency. Um, but a lot of times 
sometimes you're like the only one in your class. I think in my class, there's two of us, two black women. There's not other people. Um, sometimes too, like you realize you're not going as fast as them because there's mm -hmm. a curve. There's all sure. a curve. You guys are all coming from different medical schools. You're learning, you're getting experience. Some of it is like, you're just not, you're scared. So for me, like there was a lot of fear, like, oh my gosh, I'm really doing this right now. Oh my gosh, there's nobody in my family who's a doctor. I, there's no one I can turn to for this. So it became a very scary place for me. But then on top of that, you know, you're getting comments from staff, from people who look at you and like are really bothered by the fact that you are young right. and you have a longer white coat than them. And I did not realize that would bother people so much, but it really does bother you. And after a while, it chips at you. And for me in particular, as I was in residency, everything was happening outside the world. So Trayvon's death happened right before I would graduate med school. And then the Black Lives Matter movement would come about. Then we have Eric Garner. We have all these things happening. So I'm processing that world in my world on top of people telling me I'm not good enough. Mm. So for me, it was really tough because I was like, I, I literally remember, I can remember the incident. And this is what propelled me to go natural. I remember being, I forgot who, I want to say it was Eric Gardner. Um, and I had just seen the video and I was on call and I remember seeing a clip. And then I saw like my colleagues who don't look like me were just going about their day mm -hmm. and not to their fault. Like I'm not angry about that, but I was just so bothered on the inside. Like literally didn't know how to function that I went to the car room and I was like, I just need five minutes because I don't think I can see patients unless I get this through my chest. And I remember sitting there and I, I was like literally walking around the car room, like pacing as I'm trying to process my thoughts. And on top of that, thinking about all the stuff that I also went through and I'm like, but who wins, right? He had a hoodie and a bag of Skittles. He was outside a store, not bothering anybody. I'm in here and not to minimize what happened to them because I'm still alive. Right. But to also think to myself, like, but I've, I've articulate. I have three degrees. I'm standing before you. I have a white coat. My hair is straight. I give you the Michelle Obama look. I've given you everything and I still feel less than. Mm -hmm. So how do I make my career and my life worth something for me? And that was like it for me. I Once that happened, I was like, I'm sick of feeling this way. I'm feeling sick of feeling an outsider in too many worlds and I'm going to be me. And from there, I was very intentional about the voice I had, what I would do moving forward, um, you know, going natural and just being that person for myself more first and foremost and then for my community. For sure. And you brought on a couple of points that I, I wanted to touch on because, you know, there's this idea sometimes and it could be subconscious that if you just try to mold into societal norms about what's yeah. acceptable, yep. like, you know, for them in their eyes, that it'll be okay. Yep. Like if I just keep my hair straight and like yep. laugh at the jokes that aren't funny and appear as non-threatening, even though they see us as aggressive yes. just by our mere presence. That's what was happening um, constantly. Yeah. Yep. So, or just by knowing what you're talking about. Yep. I remember I was a summer associate and, um, so my first, it was, I was one L going to L year. I was a summer associate. You're like a nobody, right? Mm -hmm. They're just courting you. You're going to dinners, meeting people, but you know nothing. You right. just come through the first few classes. That's it. And I had a senior partner tell me, I find you very intimidating. Okay. Like from what? You, you know, you're a lawyer with at this point, 15 year career. Yep. You've done your thing. I'm here to learn. But it was just by virtue of being confident yep. and comfortable in yep. who I was and being able to articulate yep. that was intimidating. Yep. Um, someone, I had someone tell me in residency um, and attending or higher up, um, I have to watch how I'm perceived. No, <laughs> seriously. And I didn't even understand what was being said to mm -hmm. me, to be honest, because you're just going through so much. It's residency. It's busy. You're trying yeah. to be on top of your game. Watch how I'm perceived. You know, I give orders during like a code or a rapid and someone doesn't want to believe that I'm the physician, which happens to a lot of women. Let alone oh, I'm sure. Minorities. Um, I had an instance where I walked into the room and like my attending went in first, white male, and the patient goes, Hey, the doctor's here. Great. My intern, because I'm the senior resident, mm -hmm. walks in, white male. Oh, another doctor's here. 
great. Then I walk in and the person's on the phone. Oh, the maid just walked in. And I think wasn't, so he was older gentleman. Still like, doesn't make sense why you said that. It was 2017. So Mm -hmm. you don't make any sense. But no one corrected him in the room. Like no one said anything. That is the biggest scar. And this happens quite often in medical education where you're taking these hits and people just keep thinking it's the person and no one speaks up for them. So you on the other hand, like, are like, no, that's not it. But did I do something? Did I say something differently? Could I have stood taller? Could I have changed my voice? So it does these hits. Like mm-hmm. you you go through all these things that are happening. And you're like, and people would say, oh, you know, I had one time where like a nursing unit, like were conspiring to get me in trouble. Like for nothing, literally all I did was tell them what needs to be done. Like, but now, and I got to the point where I had to watch. I would say something. I'm like, did I say it too loud? Did I say it too hard? Okay, maybe I should have coaxed it with something else, with extra pleases, extra thank yous, extra smiles. Who wants to live like that? Right. And it's a constant policing. It's constant policing. You're policing yourself. We're, <laughs> we're profiled and policed oh out into God. the world. Like it was just, it was ridiculous. It was just over too much. Yeah, which adds to the need for safe spaces and community mm-hmm. because you're in, in a situation where in these environments where we are expected to take the hits and it's like we'll tiptoe around everyone else to make sure they're comfortable Mm -hmm. while you stand and have to stand in your discomfort and just accept it and try to figure out how to make changes to make it easier for for other people and God forbid you say something and then somehow the other person becomes a victim because they got called out um, for their ignorance or deliberate microaggressions etc which is just insane um, and infuriating and you're drained from your job and then you're drained from that mm-hmm. as well to mm-hmm. um to really have to like kind of stand up in that space right. you know while trying uh, to find yourself exactly a lot of us you know we come from backgrounds whether they be there's cultural differences mm-hmm. so you're trying to find that because you've been so focused on this narrative of getting this degree yeah. and getting the achievement which is helpful right it helps us get into these spaces that we wouldn't have been in or build wealth for our, ourselves and our family but you don't even know who you are like right. you are just you are so lost and you are at a point where you literally conform so much mm-hmm. you don't even know what their starting piece of clay was right and you're looking at yourself in the mirror like who is this person like, absolutely what has she become what is what is important to her what am I fighting for what why is this worth it so I I, I and I it's funny as I've been more transparent about my journey I hear this all the time oh for sure all the time. for sure yeah. it and then also I don't know if you experienced this too um being in a, a well-respected profession but also trying to overcome these implicit or explicit biases, when you do have these other things, speaking and the things that you're into that are a little more woo-woo, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know for me, I've had like, sometimes I'm I'm not very open about them because I'm afraid that they're not going to take me as seriously as an attorney or Mm -hmm. a professional. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you're doing your little thing over there. Are you really taking this that seriously? Are you giving this 110% because you want to go empower people? Um, So I've I've also had to kind of work through that. I just recently worked through that actually. Mm Because I did, I think I shared before, I did a speaking engagement, a Spark Talk um, at the New Leaders Conference last weekend. And it's funny. So I shared it on on, um, Instagram Mm -hmm. because on Instagram, I I think I'm more of myself. Yeah. Probably more of Maggie, but who shows Dr. Sherry's side, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way. Um, I shared it on my Twitter, but I really was hesitant about sharing it on my Facebook because I know I have a lot of other physicians from the organization where I work from who, who are there, who mm-hmm. are on there. Not that I'm hiding. I have nothing to hide about my story. Tell you at a board meeting or whatever. Right. That's just facts. Like, we, I will lay it down. But it was almost like, are they going to be like, well, wow, you could do that, but you can't go do this or you can't pour into this or do that and not understand the importance of why that narrative right. was so key. Like the messages I've gotten from just that talk have been insane. Mm-hmm. Where 
I felt the power of it when I gave it, but even just some of the people pouring in, like, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being transparent. Thank you for putting it out there. I, I can't even begin to tell you. So it lets me know I'm walking in my purpose and my calling, but it's funny. A lot of times God shows it to you or you Absolutely. know it and other people don't, and you don't want to get into a space where you try to justify it. But then how do you navigate through the other side of you that you mm-hmm. want to show and not just the side that has their degree attached to it? And I've had, you know, I had an attorney who does not look like me, mm-hmm. um, who's also a little bit older, who knew it was some point. It was one of those seasons where I was on a fever pitch. It was mm-hmm. like a lot of things back to back. And um, we were working together on something. And she said, I don't really get like these panels and speaking. Why is this a thing? <laughs> she just didn't understand it. Why do people need to be empowered? Um, because in, in, in her world, in her generation, OK, Oprah, yes, pass. Right. right. Oprah's right. it. Um, but not really understanding this other space. And for a minute there, I was asking myself the question, right. like, right. why is this? Why is this important? Right. Um, and then I had to remind myself that she's looking through a lens of someone who's had the carpet rolled out for her and has been able to check every box. Everything has worked out right. the way it was supposed to right. in her life, including the marriage and the children. Mm-hmm. Like she literally is like, I made a decision that I was ready to be married. And it took some time, but I found someone and I had, you know, so, um, must be nice. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, um, realizing that there is a segment of the population who they do need to hear someone else's candor about their experience and not just the the glitzy part and the shiny things that worked out, but what it has taken the difficulty and and the barriers, people need that to keep going. And also, when you've lived it, sometimes because you've learned the lesson, it feels almost remedial to you. Mm-hmm. Like, is this really powerful for other people? Right, because it right. feels like common sense for right. me now, but not realizing that's a lesson that you had to learn over time exactly. um, as well. And people are at various points on their journey. Right. Um, and looking at the flip side, too, because I think for me, what's actually been helpful is just understanding my privilege, mm-hmm. because even when you when you really understand your privilege, then you really understand how powerful it is to even empower those who did not have those right. privileges. Like I had two working parents, you know, as crazy as things were with all these restrictions and with my religion, I had something to believe in. Mm-hmm. I never grew up thinking that it wasn't a possibility for me to be a physician. I had people in my church who were going into professions, like the generation right above us. They had really set the bar for a lot of us growing up in the church. When people were like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I never saw that. All that. I don't know what you're talking about. I right. saw professionals. So like, you know, I never had the power bill like turned off and different things. So even as crazy as I had gone through other experiences, I had a lot of privilege in there mm-hmm. and I still needed to be empowered and had to look for resources of empowerment from other people. It makes it even more important for me to be a voice for other people, um, especially when they want to put you as a good black. Oh, yeah. That's my other problem, too. Right. People see you and be like, but you made it I'm like, hold on. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. <laughs> if you can do it, all of them should I'm be able like, to. Listen, let me tell you about my own privilege so we can actually really look at the real issues. Yes, I made it, but it wasn't easy for me. And even then I have to acknowledge that I had some things that other people do not have. Mm-hmm. So that's also been another kind of motivation for me because I, I don't want people looking at me and be like, but she did it. So you should be able to, you know, she made absolutely it holding. Yeah. Propping, yeah, propping she, you up. She, mm-hmm. she went through that too. And she had a tough time and she could do it. So what's your problem? No, no, no. I don't. Everybody has their own journey and we need to acknowledge that and be really honest about that and still give them a chance to grow. Absolutely. Um, we've spoken a lot about perception within the workplace. Uh, I do want to shift gears a bit and talk about perception within the community, mm-hmm. within your village, once you have made it. Made it. And mm-hmm. I use that with quotes. 
because there's a belief often that you, especially when you come and you're like the first generation to really be propelled to a certain mm-hmm. level, and you get out of school, you get your job, balling from day one, mm-hmm. like there's just money Negative. coming out of... <laughs> yeah, coming out of your ears. Right. Right. And people look at you and they're just like, they have this expectation mm-hmm. that you've made it financially immediately um, and that you don't have needs mm-hmm. or you might be able to help them meet theirs. Right. Have you experienced that? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of question is it? Um, absolutely. I think so on multiple fronts. So yes, people think six figures. I also have six figure debts mm-hmm. um, because this was not free. Right. And it's very costly. So that being a component, um, even within my family, if I'm being honest. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't have this or, you know, you got it. No, I don't. Um, I think one of the biggest shockers. So when I graduated, I was like, oh, I'm gonna get a ball of car. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at my finances and my financial advisor told me to sit down. <laughs> like, stop. Please. Right. But then I also looked at and I had to pay off credit card debt that I mm-hmm. had, like, was which was a bad habit for me to get through that. But it was also like understanding wealth and like really doing my homework. Then my eyes kind of shifted and I was like, oh, like. I really got to think about this because mm-hmm. I don't come from wealth. If anything, you know, my financial stability is for me and my family. Yeah. Like I'm the person. If somebody's struggling or there's something, I need to be okay so I can step in. That's added pressure. Right. And on top of that, the loans you have to pay off. Mm-hmm. And then I do want to get married. I do want to have kids. I do want to build that. So there's so many different ways a salary is broken up that people don't understand. And you already know we get oh. lowballed like crazy. Oh, yeah. We're always lagging. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that was part of it. I think the other part of it was also too like understanding like why I wanted to think about how to get other streams of income like with public speaking or doing different different things or thinking about writing a book and people looking like but why why can't you just sit down right and just do like the day-to-day nine-to-five and you're like no <laughs> people do not the whole building wealth piece it is something talk about that for weeks literally we could have like 14 different parts on this because it is something that people don't get really do not get when you are preparing to leave not just a legacy in terms of like how you put yourself out to the world, but a financial legacy and make sure you're straight and your retirement is straight. If there's an emergency, what happens? If we hit another recession, if my family doesn't have their 401k straight. to stay at a job that you don't want to be there. Yes, exactly. Because a lot of people do that because of the finances as well. If you make all of those choices, the, the right choices, the money that you think I make is not the money that I live off of. Not like, it's it, not even close. Not even close. And, but unfortunately, we live in a, a consult, consumption culture. So they want to see, like, the appearance of yep. wealth. Yep. What'd you buy for your parents? Yes. That was, like, a whole thing for me. Like, okay, you know, this person's kid bought them a house or whatever, or they have this. And I was, I remember saying to my parents, I was like, that person's family also has, like, four kids. They're divvying <laughs> it up. I, li- I literally, and they know, I've told my mother this, too, when we've had conversations, like, we are, they're, first of all, I just graduated. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's be honest. I just graduated. I'm entering year three of being an attending. So let's not jump ahead of ourselves. Two, you're comparing yourself to another family, but that person may not, their kids may not have as much student loans. Right. They may have been working very early on. They also have other people in the family. Like there's a couple siblings working together. You know, you know, my other siblings don't have that. They're mm-hmm. still trying to get to their areas in their life or my other brother has kids and a family that's different so you can't put us on the same playing field like nah it's not the same I have this guy I'm always beating this drum like you think and I've been out of law school at this point 10 years Mm -hmm. so people really expect right right you know that it's gonna yeah you you need to really be (laughs) doing it right exactly you don't know you don't tell I can't tell you how many times I pulled up to a function like back home and I'm still driving like my 08 Honda Accord and they're like 
Yeah, they're like, what are you doing? Like, people literally yep. are appalled. Yep. Not people who really get it and get yeah, who yeah. I am, but, like, the folks who just are flashy and yes. real new My money. My parents even like, why don't you just buy a car? And I'm like, no. If I'm buying a car, I have to pay it cash. I'm not trying to do exactly. that. And it has to be worth my money because, yes, I may want a luxury car, but is it worth it really having it now? And it took me a long time. Don't mm-hmm. worry. I was ready. I was ready about my range yes. and everything go crazy until I sat and I was, like, really thinking about this. But they don't get it. So right. So I was like, you, girl, I pull up in my two. And I am unashamed. 20 I am unashamed. I don't have a car note. Listen. That, first of all, I commute every day into the city. So it's like it sits parked. I'm not financing a depreciable asset. So I'd rather Uber somewhere. Yeah, if I like to, it, the math as right. Exactly. If it's a long weekend, I'll rent a car. If, if, if I don't feel like I can travel too far with my car until I'm ready to make the next decision, because every money decision you make is costly. It is very on costly. So many levels for people like us. And it, it took me a while to realize that. Yeah. And not just because I was making stupid decisions, right. but sometimes just a crisis would pop up and I would just be like, oh, it's my obli- obligation to help. Yep. And sometimes putting wealth building aside because I'm dispersing money here, there, and everywhere because it's just, I'll just get another check in two weeks. So it's like, you know, and not realizing until I really sat down with a financial advisor how those decisions (laughs) had affected me and are affecting when I can retire. Mm -hmm. And you've been putting money over here, 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 and here, but what about an investment portfolio? And look at, let's look at how your 401k is allocated and what's in your savings. When we started talking about it in that sense, I was like, I need like four jobs. And when you think about the money that you make statistically where you fall, you are in the upper echelon. Exactly. But what people don't realize is that when you don't have, you know, people setting you up, right? So you don't have the trust fund Mm -hmm. or families that are completely financially stable. Yeah, or or exactly, or something, an asset that so you can, you're not starting at ground zero. You're actually starting in the negative because you've had to borrow to get to that point. Um, It it was very sobering, you know, for me when I kind of started doing the math and figured that out. And it, it affects my choices every single day. And I'm a human being and ego gets in, gets in there sometimes. Yep. And, you know, I think, um, and I'm like, even at like Target mm-hmm. and I pull up and my little, you know, Honda and the woman next to me pulls up in the Accord. Yep. I mean, I'm sorry, in the, in the range. Yep. She's looking over at me down her nose. And I'm thinking, you have no idea what I do for a living. No. You have no idea how much money I no. make. You have no idea what I could have, you know? So I get into those moments where I you, I even you like know. hang my white coat in my car sometimes. <laughs> I'm being for real since we being transparent. And I just be like, ooh, Maggie, you got to put that a little... Oh, people don't need to know what you're driving. But Does like, she work at a free clinic? Right. Like, they're probably going to be like, what kind of white coat is this? This is kind of weird. I'm not expecting it in this car. Mm-hmm. So I'm deaf. I totally... It was very eye-opening for me, but I've gotten so secure with that decision yes. because I know what the later outcome is. Like, exactly. What that looks like. And I also... I'm supported by amazing friends mm-hmm. who are in other industries who we've forced ourselves to have this conversation. Yeah. And we forced ourselves to, like, talk about it share different articles like yo we ain't on it this person just bought another property right. what we doing like when we gonna do it that's really helped support my desire to be in this space and be very smart about money mm-hmm. and it, it is so much of it is people who have the same energy like our team here December 26th are like all we talk about is like when are we investing in property yep. and we all give up our days for this mm-hmm. because we know that this is another this is something that's gonna produce dividends for yep. us that we can put into other things so it, it I feel I started to feel better when I surrounded people who get it. Exactly. And when I, I say get it, I mean those who understand why I haven't made certain financial decisions that, you know, my white law school counterparts have who already have the $1.4 million house. Exactly. Or even some who look like me who just made more traditional choices. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they understand that piece, but they understand the importance of discipline mm-hmm. and making wise choices now so that our 40s look different, exactly. you know, than the 30s. Um, so... 
I, I feel you on a lot of different levels. I feel like we just need to have a drink after this, like, or a happy hour, yes, yes. coffee or something. Yes, there, there definitely there's... has to be a part two yes. segue offline. Exactly, <laughs> um, for sure. But um, before, because we also know that you have brunch today. Yes. So before we, we let you get out of here, there's a couple more things I want to touch on. Absolutely. First, even though you've told us so much, you know the question is coming. Mm-hmm. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, I feel like I I have to do that every day. Oh, I get it. Yeah. I feel like I have to do it every day. Um, and I'm like really thinking through this. Um, and here's why I say this, because as we know, I see patients and I'll see patients Mm -hmm. from different backgrounds, but there's just something about seeing my own black folk, to be honest, when they're sitting across from me in the office room that requires me to kind of almost put aside my medical training and connect with them like person to person, community to community. Um, That also forces me to kind of almost push away the status quo of doing evidence-based medicine or just looking at things a certain way and almost even being a little bit more transparent than maybe colleagues would disagree with. Um, And just understanding what that looks like and understanding how me being in that position isn't just about, you know, importing my knowledge and being their doctor, but also giving them a sense of hope mm-hmm. and and saying, hey, like, I know life, because a lot of times you find out life for them is just so tough. Um, I know life is tough, but one, I want you to, I want to encourage you to put in the work on yourself and let you know that you can keep going, but also just trust that I have your best interest and building that rapport. Right. And that may take adding an extra 15 minutes and putting me behind schedule that my colleagues can't understand. But in that moment, I leave the room and I literally will leave the room most times when that happens and close my eyes and just be so grateful and humble that I have that perspective and that God has given me that purpose in life um, to have those encounters um, in that space, like as a physician. So that's where I feel like it's all the time. Um, I think my last talk, though, if I have to give like a one pinpoint when I talked about um, the power of natural hair and sharing my journey, that was the first time I've actually vocalized it Mm. like fully and shared about what made me transition, not only my hair, but just my voice, my impact and interest in medicine, the dialogues I wanted to have. Um, That probably like last weekend when I gave that talk Mm -hmm. was there was something that happened to me on that stage that people don't know, like when you see the clip, but I was like literally sitting and being in the audience and just, I was pouring my heart out. Mm -hmm. I was telling people, you know, yes, I love medicine, but it also hurt me in so many ways. And what I've gone through in this process and what I had to learn about myself and just appreciating being authentic, that it did take, it was an ordinary day and it could have been an ordinary speaking engagement, but it took a lot of vulnerability Mm -hmm. to be able to put myself, knowing that that video would spread, knowing that it's going to be highlighted and publicized um, to be like, you know what? I don't care. I don't care who watches this. I don't care how I may be judged for this, but I'm going to speak my truth um, in that moment and almost do it in a way where I'm also using a gift, which is my gift of speaking and being in front of an audience to do it as well too. So speaking of speaking your truth, I do want to circle back to that IG post that Mm -hmm. I referenced um, earlier because I do do try to make a habit of actually following up the things that I say I'm (laughs) going to talk about. Um, But it's a a portion of a a caption. It wasn't a whole caption, but you said, for those like me who fell off the wagon or let situations, relationships work, get in their head, it's all good. Go back to finding your balance. Mm -hmm. Um, and why that stuck out stuck out to me is because of what we were talking about earlier. Black women, we are so hard on ourselves mm-hmm. when we've fallen off mm-hmm. of our workouts, of our skincare routines, right. of eating right. Um, and sometimes not really giving credence to the experiences that are happening in, in major right. areas of our lives. 
family, work, this, whatever, that is affecting us. Mm -hmm. um, so what advice do you have to the woman who has fallen off the wagon and is trying to figure out um, how to get out of her own head and right. stop beating herself up and get back on? Um, that you may not completely get out of your head. So mm -hmm. this is something I struggle with very much so. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from those years of not really talking, mm -hmm. but trying to process what had happened to me when I was younger and moving forward. Um, so you may not be perfect at this. And I think that's the hard part, especially for women, um, ambitious women mm -hmm. who have been almost not perfect, but like had everything aligned a certain way. This may be one of those areas you have to accept in your life that may not be so right. perfectly aligned. Um, and think back to a moment where you were your happiest, where you didn't care, like you didn't second guess, you didn't think about anything and then work to get back at that place. Mm -hmm. I know for me, when I got to residency, I realized I hadn't had that moment. Yeah. And that's what it became. I need to go find that. I desire to find what that joy really is because I thought it was a degree and it's not. Mm -hmm. So how do I get there? Or I thought it was people will say, you know, the joy only come from the Lord. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. But I do live in this everyday life. Yeah. So yes, that's a source for me. That's that's my rootings. But how do I wake up every day and feel good about myself besides just getting on my knees and praying? There's more to it. There has mm -hmm. to be, right? So just finding that time where the smile was real. You didn't care when you smiled. You didn't care how your hair looked. And you know, for women, that's oh, big. that is like, huge. You, the last time you didn't even look in the mirror and start analyzing all your roles or looking at your skin and be like, oh man, I should lose. 10 pounds mm -hmm. and looking just looking at that moment where the the laugh literally came from the belly out or you look at yourself and you're like yo I, I'm gonna give kudos to what I've accomplished yeah. so far and just you smile and you smirk at yourself because you're like yo I did it like I did it um if you haven't done it before, it's finding how to get there and being transparent with talking to other people mm -hmm. that you think have balance to see how they got there. And if you do identify a place of where you've had it before, what took you away from there? Right. And that and be OK with saying that might be stepping away from a job that might be stepping away from a relationship that might be removing certain things that you became your crutch. Um, and that's what I did. Like I when I was on my journey to finding my balance, I had to learn to put distance between me and my family. Mm. I had to. I had to create boundaries. Which I is like to. a cardinal sin a amongst, cardinal sin. especially talking about Caribbean, all yep. that other stuff. And yeah. I, what we haven't talked about is like my mom is sick. So mm -hmm. my mom has Parkinson's disease and that's always been a tough thing for my family. So people were talking about me. People were just like, I don't understand. Like, why would she go work so far and have her own apartment and not be closer to her family? I know people talk about that. I know people have said that even within my church. I hear it mm -hmm. um, and be like, why is she not there? Like, why isn't she on her every whim? And don't get me wrong. My mother is everything for me. I wouldn't be here without her. But I also know what I have gone through yeah. and I needed that space. So just understanding that in order for you to find there, you're going to have to push back against a lot of things. And I think that is like the place to start. You just preached a whole word. Because <laughs> listen, I mean, I, I'm, it took me a while to get there, mm -hmm. but I talk to friends and people I care about all the time and so much suffering just because they won't set the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why won't you just move? Or you have the, the means, or why won't you tell this person, no, like this ends here. Yep. You you need to exit my life. This is not serving me. Oh, because I can't. Well, why can't you? Right. You know, it's just this belief that we... It's a fear. It too. is a fear. Exactly. Yeah. We don't want to let people down. We don't want people to think that we've changed, yeah. that we've put our careers, our own needs, even though that's what you should be doing right. above others. And, you know, and we're you not making what it, it looks like. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. part of what happens with the ambition, like, you know, if I get this thing and I move up, that's a good thing. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm going to be next for partner. Or I'm mm -hmm. going to, you know, go to this next chapter. Part of this work, you don't know what it's going to look like. Yep. You're almost scared. Like one of the mm -hmm. things 
that scared me as I started to be more about um, social injustice and what that looked like. I'm like, what am I? Am I going to be the people outside protesting? Like that scared me. <laughs> and I know it sounds so crazy, but right. I wasn't raised that way. Mm-hmm. Right. So this became scary for me because I was like, but I didn't have that voice before. I'm going to be an outsider because I'm not used to this. And oh, like, what does that mean? What does that put me? And that was super scary. And then finally, when I embraced it, now I'm like, yo, if that's where it brings me, that's where it brings mm-hmm. me. Like, that's what I'm meant to do um, and being okay with that. But that unknown, I still struggle with sometimes. Yes. Because even when I got someone, I'm like, but God, I was comfortable. What you doing? <laughs> now, oh, we're going to be stretched again. That, like, that's what's oh, going no, on. Yeah, we're going to push you through. And I'm like, what you doing? <laughs> that's part of something I still like, I'm going through that process now, which mm-hmm. we had talked about some issues before we got on here. But yeah, like I'm still going through that process, but I can tap into how I did it before and be like, all right, I made it through that right. time. Here's what we're going to do again. Yes. We're going to take a woosah. We might have to read another Bible verse. <laughs> Right. A Maya Angelou quote, right. three Bible verses. Maybe a couple yeah. shot classes aside from the Bible um, to get you through it. But just owning that space and mm-hmm. understanding the work you do now is just going to help you in so many things moving forward. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So before we let you get out of here, uh, talk just a little bit about your signature talks and the work that you do there. Oh, absolutely. So want to so... make sure you get your brand out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. So mm-hmm. I do do motivational speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my talks really, I have a brand that's more so the focus movement. So it's about finding your purpose, overcoming obstacles, um, committing to, you know, establishing your tribe, which we kind of talked about having those people around you, um, utilizing resources and striving. So that's where we get the name nomenclaimer focus from. Mm -hmm. So that's a signature talk that I do to schools um, from middle school to high schools to colleges um, to encourage students to kind of focus their thinking and Mm -hmm. their time into getting to where they want to in life. Um, I love that talk because I get very vulnerable, kind of like what we're talking here, because people see the outside now and don't understand what I went through. So I talk about how I had to focus on different levels, my failures, the mistakes I made and how I could, I learned to do better and get to that point and share my own transparencies with them. So that's one of them. Um, I also do a natural hair talk talking mm-hmm. about my own journey and one, like how it's a door to health because people don't realize your hair's falling out. It could tell a lot about what's happening on right. the inside. So I use that angle depending on what audience and like, hey, you should probably know that you should probably go to your doctor, but here's more things. You want glamorous hair, you want it to grow, probably need to exercise, mm-hmm. eat right and do everything. So that's kind of a twist. And then also just sharing about how to navigate through very uh, predominantly white spaces where they expect you to be a certain way and walk in and your hair is this big yeah. <laughs> and you're like sitting there blocking half the table. <laughs> Happens all the time. So just that. Just glistening. Right. You know. um, also, reclaiming your womanhood is another favorite one that I do, which is more so geared to adolescent girls and using what's been projected on us from media to talk about how we create our own narratives mm-hmm. and make our own stories. And that usually ends with a uh, reclaiming my womanhood pledge as well, too. And I just do talks customized for other people um, who contact me and maybe do want one for a banquet um, or anything of that sort. So. And where can people find you online? Uh, Instagram at Dr. Magdala Sherry. And I have a website that's also www.drmagdalasherry.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter, same handle as my Instagram. Um, it makes it easier just to keep my yes, name yes, <laughs> and not course. make it difficult for people. But yeah, Instagram, Twitter, uh, my website are always people can contact me. Shout out to Al Hardy, who made yes. the recommendation to, to have you on the show. Yes. Al came on. He's, he's episode 70. Friend. See, Al, I knew he was insightful. I knew that. 
But I think he knew that this would be a great conversation. So thank you, Al, for making that happen. Thank you, I appreciate Um, that. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I didn't get to like seven other things that I wanted to talk about. That's what we didn't even talk about. Health outcomes in the black community. But we were having good conversations. Yeah, exactly. We we didn't talk about dating as a, you know, professional black woman and that whole thing. That could be a week, so we probably should avoid that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I thoroughly enjoyed this. I did too. Thank you. Thank you Um, for allowing me to be transparent and giving me that avenue and asking me the questions you had um, because it's hard to kind of just say it out there. But I value every platform I have to just be very true to myself and true to the voice that I have. So thank you. We appreciate the candor because we believe that is what sets our show apart. Um, and, and being able to show the weakness and the, the scars and all those things and, and, and how to find strength in your own vulnerability. Right. So thank you as yeah. well. To our listeners, make sure you te- check out Dr. Sherry online. And you, will you travel for speaking, speaking engagements yes, as I well? Okay. Travel. So even those of you who are not in the tri-state area, yes. she can get on a flight. But make sure you come with that check, though, if, you, if you're asking <laughs> for that. Absolutely. I got um, loans to pay off. <laughs> listen, we, we discussed the money, okay? Um, but check her out online. Make sure you share this podcast and leave comments and all that great stuff if you enjoy it. And remember, as always, to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Take care.